Hi, and welcome to the Productized Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productized Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Hello. Hi, everyone. So welcome to the Productize podcast. We are doing this because we believe that this is the place for innovators, product creators, entrepreneurs, product people to come discuss ideas. And our mission is really to inspire more people to build great product experiences. My name is Andre Marquet, and I'll be your host. So today, I'll be talking with Howard Tierski. Howard is the author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Winning Digital Customers, and um, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Relevance. And he's also the founder of Digital Transformations uh, Agency, From, which has won over 100 awards for user experience design. From helps companies grow revenue across digital channels and has been creating some of the, the, the best award-winning web and mobile products for shopping, banking, travel, and entertainment. In his 25-year career helping large enterprises win in the digital space, Howard has worked on projects for dozens of Fortune 1000 companies and has been named one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers by IDG. Hi, Howard. How are you? Hey, Andre. Awesome. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Sure. It's a pleasure. It's really great to have you on this show. We are now on our third year and um, have we're so lucky to have great people like you with, with us. So congratulations on um, your successful new book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Relevance. Um, you know, one thing that I'm always inspired is about the story of writing a book because it takes so much time such a personal effort so can you tell us a little bit about the process you went to to write it sure well i could tell you this i will write my next book differently <laughs> but um yeah you know i worked on it for a few years well i guess i should say the first the first thing I did was spend 25 years in the industry helping large companies with digital transformation so that was step one <laughs> And uh, doing that really helped me see the patterns that uh, really differentiate those companies that are successful at digital transformation from those that fail or stagnate or suboptimize their efforts. And so the opportunity to work with so many great companies and so many great people, both on my team and at our clients, really helped me kind of see some things that I thought I could put into a book. And in fact, I had been writing on many topics related to innovation, design, product development, uh, you know, design thinking, usability, et cetera, for many years. So mm -hmm. I have hundreds and hundreds of articles that were out there. So I, I had always wanted to do a book. And at one point, said, someone said to me, you know, if you just take uh, a, a bunch of your articles, you could sort of put them together into a book. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I like that because that sounds easy. <laughs> but actually, um, so, so we spent a few months and I had someone on my team work with me on this to try to figure out, okay, well, I have articles on different topics. So how do we sort of bring them together? Long story short, what we realized was we had a lot of great information and material, models, insights, but you couldn't just bring these articles together and make them into a book. I mean, you could. You could make a book that was like 
all just like here are a bunch of articles. You see sometimes a columnist will do that or something. But to make a really great book, it was clear to me that we need to do something much different from that. So mm -hmm. what we really wound up doing is using all these source materials and what we thought was going to be a six month project wound up taking a couple of years off and on to really say, how do I synthesize this whole approach that my company uses to digital transformation into something that's digestible for anybody? And how do I create the right way of telling that story so that it's interesting, that it's full of a lot of anecdotes and examples, but also the kind of tools that allow somebody to actually go do it. And if someone were to go use this information and do it, what more might they need? So what that led us to do is write a, a very detailed book, but also create a whole big website full of supplemental materials, mm -hmm. templates, videos, uh, additional uh, eBooks that expand right? on some of the topics. What's that? Like a toolbox where you, you can go. It's a go-to place for materials, canvas, and you know, just complementary material to the book, right? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in the end, we probably, you know, it's funny. At the very end, uh, and this book, you know, oh, here. <clears throat> so here's the book. All right. And I mean, it's not like obscenely thick, but it is a 400 page long book. <laughs> and I, um, I went to a, mar a book promotion person, you know, we were getting ready to launch the book. And so I was talking to people who promote books and get the word mm -hmm. out. And he said to me, uh, do you know what the average length of a successful business book is? And I said, what? He goes, 170 pages. He goes, you've written almost three business books here. <laughs> you know? Um, he, you know, so he was like, maybe you should break it up into pieces. And I'm like, please, I've spent two years on this book. I'm not spending another year figuring out how to break it into pieces. So we launched it and it's done very well. So, but uh, one thing well, I learned was that I, wor I worked harder than necessary. You really opened the kimono. All the secrets are in the book. I sure tried. And where we couldn't fit the secrets in the book, we tried to put them on the website. I really tried to not hold anything back so that someone who wants to go do it themselves at their company has everything I could think of. Uh, although I have to admit, whenever I do a live cast and I do two live casts a week, I always think, oh, that should have been in the book or that should have been in the book. But then I remember the book was already too long. So the truth of the matter is, it's a complicated topic, right? Because we talk about everything from how do you, what's, what's changing in the world that requires digital transformation to how do you get people on board and aligned around digital transformation to how do you create a journey map? How do you build great products? How do you deal with organization resistance to change? So the truth is we cover four or five different topics in the book, each of which could probably be its own book. Um, but there's a lot in there for sure. And I hope people tell me that they're using it, you know, step by step as their roadmap. People have shown me books that they've like highlighted or they've got tons of post-it notes in. And I always like to see that because it tells me they're really using it. And that was really my goal. Right. Like, like a playbook. So, you know, one, um, one of our former speakers at Productize Conference, also a former Netflix uh, VP of product, Gibson Biddle, he says that everyone has a special superpower. And I'm wondering, what's your top secret superpower um, other than writing books and having uh, team motivated? What's, what's really in your DNA that makes it, makes you drive, makes you motivate people, um, makes change happen inside companies because such a challenging task, especially when you go into culture and lots of the stuff that you also cover in the book. Yeah, it's funny. It makes me think there's a part of the book where we talk about being a digital transformation leader and all the superpowers it requires. And it's a little tongue in cheek, but we say like you have to speak multiple languages because you have to be able to speak the language of technology and business and marketing. And you have to operate with 
you have to super speed, you know, and you have to be able to time travel because you have to both think of the needs of today and the needs of the future, you know? So obviously this is all a bit tongue in cheek, but uh, that's one of my favorite things in the book. There's a diagram of a superhero showing all of these different things. Um, but, you know, if I had to speak for myself and say, you know, what's something I would hesitate to call myself a superhero, but I think the thing that is the most valuable skill that I've cultivated is how do you get the best out of other people? Mm -hmm. um, I started out my career as a theater director. Mm -hmm. And when you're a theater director, wow. you know, you're not on stage. <laughs> when the show is over, you should be able to walk away and yeah. it should be able to happen without you. And it's how do you get the best out of a diverse array of people, including the people on stage, of course, but also other people, the people on backstage, the, the technology people, how do you, a lighting designer, a sound designer, costume designer. Was that in New York? You started, you started your career. Um, what, 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 where was that? Yeah, I went to school in New York at NYU for theater directing, mm -hmm. and then I actually went and got a master's degree, which I probably didn't need in retrospect, but it seemed like the thing to do at the time, in uh, the same at uh, University of Southern California in Los Angeles. So I, I directed uh, plays both in uh, New York and in L.A., um, mm -hmm. not uh, you know at the largest, as I was just a kid back then, right? I was in my early 20s, and so... I was doing that, um, but I was I directed uh, you know professionally uh, and uh, but you know I really uh, while I was doing that because of course when you're when you're doing that early in your profession you're generally right. not making a lot of money mm -hmm. so most people have some other kind of job and my other job was computer graphics work and so oh, I was doing okay. 3D animation and so web what, design digital design Silicon, Silicon Valley back then or or in no California? I was in L A you were in L A yeah when I was you're in L A I went, when I was in California I was in L A. Mm -hmm. So that was, I don't know, 30 years ago or something like that. So that was very early digital graphics. I know, don't uh, tell me. Work, right? Yeah. That you yeah, were one of the pioneers on digital graphics, like, I don't know, back in the 90s or 80s. Well, yeah, I, I, let's, I put it this way. I was someone using digital graphics at a time right. when the real pioneers were, were, were creating, uh, you know, the, the work render man for 3D animation. Right. Yeah. I love so I love 3D animation. I used to um, at the time mm -hmm. you couldn't really do it on like a Mac or a PC very practically. You had mm -hmm. to have like a silicon graphics workstation yeah. or something like I, that. I remember those. So I had friends at yeah yeah. So I had friends at Art Center in Pasadena. I didn't go mm -hmm. there, but I knew a lot of people there, and so I could just walk into the computer lab. So I, I would. You could never do this today, by the way, with security mm -hmm. today. But back then, yeah. uh, I would just go on the three, weekends. Three, uh, September 11. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. Security. And I would just go use, you know, a $75,000 computer and a $50,000 piece of software all day in the computer lab. I loved it. Um, so, but I, I was, uh, uh, you know, that was an, it was an exciting time in computer graphics. And even this was really before the web or before well, the, the commercial web in any case. Right, before commercial web. So what did you learn that that so you're talking about directing people and motivating people i guess from your you know they they are on stage and you cannot be on stage so that's actually you know in a way it forces you to to not be on stage right so you cannot even be on stage you cannot go there and just do it for them so you have to delegate right. a lot you have to um enforce process and rehearsal i guess So what's the, the top secret superpower that came out from those early days of computer graphics and stage staging? Well, from the, from the theater side of it, I think mm -hmm. you have to help people find, help them find, like if you're 
directing someone who's a performer, you have to help them find it. You can't tell them completely the answer because they won't accept it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, the classic thing as a director. You're never supposed to give a line reading. You're never supposed to say to the actor, do it this way. Right. Um, partly because it, it just doesn't come out with, you don't get a good performance on the other end of that. So figuring out how to coach people to help them find something. And I think it's the same in business. You know, when, when teams effectively transform an organization, it's because they feel ownership over it. They have found a vision that they believe in, that they feel like they're a, help, a co-creator of. And I think whenever you create a show, you need the people who are doing it to feel not like they're there as uh, executing your vision. Empowered, Even though as a director, teams, it's your right? job to bring the vision. Empower teams, like Marty Kagan says all the time, right? You have to empower mm-hmm. people. So on that topic, I mean, I've, I've seen a video um, of you talking about the three levels and your recipe to achieve customer love. Um, mm-hmm. What are those three levels? Because I was really intrigued. I mean, you, you got to speak about those three levels, but what are the biggest challenge to accomplish them, right? Because, sure, you know, sure. I guess lots of companies, they, they read the book or they, they see your talk. And they say, okay, I, I got it. So, you know, but there's lots of biggest, cha- lots of big challenges that prevent, are actually preventing company to get to those three levels. And if you can just go through them, that'll be great. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, let me start by saying um, one of the key ideas of the book is that yeah. achieving the love of your customers is one of the most valuable things you can do in business. Mm-hmm. Most companies aren't there yet, but those that are, and we give some examples, and I've done this uh, on my live cast as well, is... Uh, the, the, the financial benefits of that are extraordinary in terms of revenue, margin, uh, valuation of a company, growth. All the classic business metrics are very, very well correlated to companies that have a strong level of emotional investment we call customer love by their customers. So to your question then, well, how do you, it, that can sound very ephemeral, you know, like mm-hmm. how do you make a customer love you? Well, and just like in theater directing, you can't force them but you can inspire them. And so then the question is, well, what is it that inspires love? And so in my work, recognizing the importance of this emotional customer connection for many years in my work, one of the things that my teams and I have always been trying to do is do something that might sound a little not very romantic, which is how do you reverse engineer love? How do you figure out what is it that causes people to love a brand? And we've really distilled it down to three key things. So let me tell you what the three things are. And you're right. The the good news is it's conceptually simple to understand the three things. The bad news is it can be difficult to actually do the three things. But so what are the three things? I think of it kind of like a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid is you must meet your customer's needs very consistently in whatever domain your business is in, whether you're a plumber or a bakery or an accounting firm. Within that area, you must consistently- Gas station example. Exactly. Consistently you go to your gas station needs. and you're happy just because gas is there, right? And that's delivering. Right. right. And that, then you have a right. second. And yes. So, the, so if you just meet their needs, they're mm-hmm. probably not going to love you. We all probably have brands in our life that, that meet our needs and yet we don't have a feeling toward them. Right. But, uh, so, but if you don't do that, it's very almost impossible to get customer love. So that's a requirement, but it's not sufficient. Right. That's a basic. The second level. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's that's like the basis of the pyramid, right? But that's like the foundations. Exactly. Yes, precisely. The second level is to occasionally or periodically exceed their needs and expectations to delight them. Create mm-hmm. occasional delight. Go above and beyond. 
occasionally. Mm -hmm. That's the second level. And if you do that, your brand, people are more likely to like your brand. And I'll actually tell you the third level, and then I'm going to explain briefly why. Why is it that these three levels work together? So that's the second level. And the third level is to stand for something that they care about. Have a meaning to your company beyond just we're a gas station that resonates with that customer. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the brands that, that people love, whether it's Apple or Disney or Harley Davidson or Nike, and I apologize, I, I don't know if there's certain brands in Portugal that I might not be as familiar with, but uh, these are brands that, that stand for something, Ben and Jerry's, Whole Foods. Uh, and if you think about brands that maybe still do a lot for their customers, like let's say Citibank, mm -hmm. but don't really feel like they stand for anything to most people, you don't see that level of emotional connection. So that's the third component that kind of completes the puzzle. And one of the questions I get asked a lot is, well, well why these three things? You know, mm -hmm. and, and, and the reason is because through the research that we've done, love, which is, of course, an emotion. And where do emotions come from? One thing I learned from Tony Robbins, who I've worked with for years, is mm -hmm. that emotions come from meaning. The meaning that you give to somebody or, or something, something happens, how you feel about it is associated with the meaning. So what is the meaning of these three things? If you know, the customer knows that you want to meet their needs because that's the deal, that's business. You do something for me, I give you money. So it's no surprise to the customer that you can meet their needs. But when you do, what does it say to the customer? What's the meaning? The meaning is you understand them. The customer says, this business understands my needs because mm -hmm. they're meeting them, they must understand them. And you know, people like to be understood. If you're not meeting their needs, very often customers feel like, you know, you're, they just don't get it. They don't understand what I need. Then the second level, occasionally delighting, why is it that, that, what is the meaning that comes from that? Well, it says to the customer, they care about me mm -hmm. because that's something they didn't have to do. I was going to give them my money anyway for right. their gas, but now they've like, come along and they've got brought me a free cup of coffee or they've right. get whatever they've done for me. It was like a bonus. They must care about me. What's that? Feels like a bonus, right? Just something you. Right, right. The guy ran out and said, oh, I see some dirt on your windshield. I'm going to clean it off for you. You know, mm -hmm. no, no other expectations, just something extra that the meaning that we get is they care about me. So just think in your own life about people that you think really understand you and also care about you. That might start to get you to feel pretty warmly towards those people. But when you layer on the third level, which is to stand for something that you, to, rep, to stand for something that you agree with, mm -hmm. uh, that says they are like me. We have something in common. That's the feeling. And so if you think in your life about people who have all of those, they get you, they care about you, and you really have some important commonality those maybe sound like people who you'd really want to be friends with or close with, someone you'd want to have, uh, you have some emotional connection to. Yeah. And so, so that's it. That's the formula. And then the question is, how do you do that as a brand? Yeah, and it's, it sounds difficult, especially aspirational stuff at the end of, at this very top of the pyramid. Um, what, what, you know, one of the, you know, I guess let's just maybe go into more specific examples. You know, you are the CEO of the Digital sure. Transformation Agency in, in New York City. And um, what, what are the main customer pains that you've seen lately? And how can digital help overcome? And I think digital is maybe just part of the answer uh, coming 
coming, just taking stock of what you were saying regarding brand experience and, and customer experience, because how do you design that around the, um, around some of the, 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 the commonality uh, pains that you have seen lately? Sure. Um, so we work across a lot of different industries from online shopping to you know, home uh, air conditioning installation to we're working with another company on satellite projects that relate to satellites. So as you can imagine, in some ways they're quite different, but I actually think that if you really boil it down to what are the points of pain about, usually it's really only one of two or three things. Mm -hmm. It's either I'm confused, I don't understand, or I'm not getting what I need. I need something and, and it's not available. I'm not getting it. You know, you want to order something, it's out of stock. Or you want something shipped overnight, but they don't have overnight shipping or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and a variation of that would be it's too expensive, right? Either they don't have it or I can't get it because it's just not reasonably priced, right? That's the second thing. And the third is it's too slow or takes too much effort. Mm -hmm. And because of the digital leaders like Amazon or Uber or Airbnb, the expectations of how long things should take keep getting reset, right? Consumers expect things to be more and more and more efficient and take less of their time, less waiting in line, less calling on the phone, less filling out forms, all these things. And so, uh, you know, if you think about going for dinner, what are some of the points of pain? Well, you know, waiting for your waiter to come over and take your order, waiting, you know, waiting for the food, waiting for your check, all these types of things. So, uh, you know, while of course, you know, a, a lot of what we talk about in the book, and I think is really critical is figuring out how do you go and find all the specific things within your business? If you're a car rental company, what are the things that are confusing? What are the things that are slowing the customer down? And they exist across the whole customer journey at different points in time. So finding all of those is, of course, a key part of it. But you can expect that many of them will be around this area of convenience. And uh, so a lot of if you look at something like Uber, one of the reasons why it's most so successful is it simply takes away a lot of points of effort or pain that you would have had if you were calling a car service Absolutely. or hailing a taxi. So, so you're, you're actually redesigning the Avis app, which is, I guess, uh, now ranked at, um, you know, number one by JD Powers in the auto industry. Um, I remember the last time I rented a car here in Lisbon, um, and it was a pretty much a nightmarish experience. I had to wait forever. You know, they had they 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 made me sign these paper forms. Then they had to wait in this room and this. You know, this was I don't know three two three years ago. So this this was even pre-COVID. Um. So congratulations, changing that per se. It's I think it's an, it's it's already great. I, it was not Avis. It was another company. So can you tell me a, a little bit about what went well in this uh, redesign of the experience? Uh, you were talking about taking some of this attrition points in the customer journey? Um, how did you approach yeah. this client? How do you approach this journey, I guess? Sure. Yeah, well, we've worked on many uh, websites and apps for the Avis Budget Group over the years, both in the US and in Europe. And uh, I would say uh, our approach starts with research. It's always mm -hmm. to understand what is the customer's journey today? What's mm -hmm. actually happening? How do they go about deciding where to rent a car? What happens when they go through the process of actually signing up uh, or, or making a reservation? What happens when they get off the airplane and, and, and need to figure out how to get 
to the car rental location if it's an airport? What happens when they get on the bus? What happens when they get there? Understanding each of these little slices of the journey and our, what, first of all, what's great? What's working well? Because we always want to make sure we're also acknowledging those things. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right, and what are the areas where customers are experiencing any level of effort, pain, friction, frustration, confusion, disappointment, any of these things? And so what we often will create from that is what we call a pain map. So we created one for Avis Budget Group, and it, it had all kinds of things on it. And some of them weren't the things that customers even blamed uh, the, uh, the, the car rental company for. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. is it the car rental company's fault if you get off the airplane and you can't figure out which hallway to walk down to find the car rental place? Well, no, that's the right. airport, right? But it does but impact, still, right? Yeah. It's part of your journey, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so if we can figure out how to solve that problem, is it the car rental company's fault if you thought you only needed a compact car, but then you get a call that says, hey, you're going to be driving with two other people and you need a midsize car? No. But that is still a point of pain that now, oh, I would have to wait in line, change my car out. So now with Avis, for example, there's a whole new process where it's super easy using the app to just change the car if you realize it's not the car you want and get a different car without having to wait in line. Yeah, so great. things like that, right? You know, uh, you know, it's it, it, if if you're if you don't know when the bus is coming, and those if you're at O'Hare Airport and yeah, what's changing that? the ch changing the car after you have chosen the car, it, it does provide delight because you know it happened to me once and it was kind of a pain as well. I, I went to Madeira Island, which is um, in the middle of Atlantic. I had a, a girlfriend at the time. We were I was going cheap, so I rented like the, the cheap cheap car option, and car just didn't have enough power to. To tackle the island's uh, slopes, but because Madeira is pretty uh, slopey, and I I had to change the car, and it was quite a painful experience going back to the airport, changing the car, blah blah blah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that's that the whole pain is the pain map something a trademark to to from or is it um, industry canvas? Uh, where you, where you you developed that? Yeah, I mean, we haven't uh, trademarked it, but we talk about it. And I mean, it's 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 a form of journey mapping. You know, there are so many mm -hmm. ways to represent right. a customer journey map. I think we have our own way of doing it that might be might be unique, but I don't think the concept of it is necessarily unique to us. By the way, I talk about it in the book. There's examples, and there's even mm -hmm. templates for pain maps that are on the password protected website that comes with the book. Uh, but the basic idea, uh, and it comes from, you know, design thinking and other pr practices of saying, let's really understand, empathize with the customer, right? Understand mm -hmm. what are their challenges and problems each step of the way. And because when you understand those, you know, I mean, look at Uber and the taxi experience had all kinds of points of pain, you know, mm -hmm. couldn't find a taxi, you hold your arm out, someone else gets it. You get in the car, you have to explain to the driver where you're going. You worry, did yeah. he understand you? You know, all kinds of things. And Uber successfully eliminated a number of key points of pain to create, you know, a much better product, a much better much experience better for most Absolutely. people. So, and so, and that's it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just wondering from from working with some of those largest brands in the digital transformation process, what have you learned, right, from those cases that went well? And I guess Avis is is one of those cases. And can you give me specific examples that come to mind of things that went really well and, and um, you know, that can be maybe takeaways for other projects, future transformational um, projects? Sure. Well, to some degree, my book is an answer of what I've learned, 400 pages of what I've learned. You know? But because but, uh, uh, so much, right? Because and the, I've worked the, with so many amazing people. Now. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. But, uh, you know, I think if I were to pick one thing, uh, that's well, maybe two, I'll pick two things that are particularly important. One of them is customer research. Mm -hmm. There is just no more valuable tool. That is the way you aim product development. And I'm constantly amazed at how under leveraged it is. Absolutely. So many companies that are launching products of all sorts, digital and non-digital, without the kind of rigorous customer research. Sometimes they do a little bit, like they do like a quick survey or something, but really going through a proper process, which is you know, not necessarily that time consuming or that expensive, but to just make sure that you understand the problem you're solving and then you test this concept for the solution with customers to see, does this really work? Does this really solve the problem? And of course, that is something that is regularly done by some companies. But you know, I would say 70% of companies do some of it, and maybe only 25% of companies do enough of it. It's still way underutilized. So I think that's one thing, because I've seen when that is used in the right way and the right steps are taken to understand the customer, and we describe in the book extensively ways to do that, um, it makes the likelihood of the product success so much greater. And, yeah, and and this and then this the, is, the other one, if you want, yeah, yeah, so the, other, the other one would be uh, what? Why? The other one would be being ready for resistance to change. Mm -hmm. If you're looking to do something that is a substantial innovation, improvement, transformation, whatever term you use. Mm -hmm. It may seem obvious to you that this is going to be better. Oh, you know, it's going to be better for the customer and we're going to make more money and it's not even going to be that expensive. And like all the things are lined up and it just seems like a no brainer. Look out. Because the reality is any change benefits somebody and it harms somebody. Mm -hmm. I don't care what that change is. There's somebody who may be on the losing end of that change. You know, if you yeah. if you figure MTV, out MTV how to make is going to kill the, the radio star, Spotify is going to kill MTV and whatever. Right. So you don't have this. is Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, one. You know, and and, and when it's a competitor, mm -hmm. when it's a competitor, it's not necessarily as big a problem, although it could be if that competitor decides to start being aggressively competitive to stop you. But within an organization, it happens too. if I create mm -hmm. a great app that allows customers to order with a click of a button. Yeah. What about those 5,000 people in the call center? Are yeah, we still exactly. going to need them? Are we not going to need all of them? It's great for the company to save the money, but what about the guy who runs those call centers? His right. bonus is tied to you know his size of his call centers and whatnot. Is his, is his empire within the company going to shrink? If so, even if it's absolutely the right thing for the company, he may very well, or she, uh, go, okay, how do I, this right. is not good for me. You know, How do I, yes. As much as sabotage, that's right. I see it all the time. I, I hate to be, I hate to sound paranoid, but the truth is in corporate environments, the people who have risen to the top, it's because they're survivors and they know how to win political battles. And when mm -hmm. you threaten them, they're going to use their skills, which sometimes are substantial against what you're trying to transform or, or the transformation you're trying to make happen. You need to be ready for that and you need to be ready for a battle. And what kind of counterinsurgency tactics do you use to, um, you know, when I guess when you are invited to a company or you're pitching a company, um, you're talking with someone inside the company that is your ally, is someone that wants, you know, you guys to do something. But again, it's a very complex ecosystem. It's a very big company and lots of people involved. So how do you navigate those waters? Do you have any kind of 
navigational shards to avoid the sharks, avoid the saboteurs, avoid whatever waters that are tricky and treacherous and, uh, you know, make that boat get to harbor? Yeah. Well, um, sure. I mean, a lot. Uh, I'll mention a few. The first thing is um, to try to understand the landscape. Who are the people with power? And who really needs to be on board in order for something to be successful and approved and move forward within an organization? The second thing is uh, don't avoid the sharks. <laughs> uh, try to embrace the sharks. Um, because, and, and don't villainize anybody. Recognize that everybody is yeah. doing what they're doing for a good reason, from their perspective. So try to understand, uh, again, you know, it's to some degree, it's design thinking all over again, right? How do we under empathize and understand with all of these different individuals who may have different points of view and different value propositions relative to your, uh, you know, I mean, if relative to this transformation and then at least try to say, hmm, is there a path for this to be a win for this person? Because sometimes you can take your, your detractor and turn them into an advocate by just putting their name on the project or just having them feel like there's a role for them or allowing them to play a, a creative part of coming up with some facet of the project. Uh, so it depends. That's not a surefire solution, but I think the first round of defense is to say, who, who do we really need in the boat and how can we really get them on board? And for example, we do a lot of workshops. We have a whole workshop facility in Manhattan and a lot of big companies come there. And when they're doing major transformational projects, we'll spend two, three days with 30, 40, 50, 60 people, uh, mm -hmm. taking them through the information and having them brainstorm and ideate and plan and scenario things out. And that can be very helpful because people all of a sudden feel like they're part of the team. And now they have, they're sort of, they say, you know, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when, when they feel ownership, you know, they say people resist change but they support the change that they create. So if you can make them feel like they're a co-creator in this change, not like it's being imposed upon them or it's from the outside, you have a greater likelihood of getting them to be on board. So that's the first path step. And that very often can work 70% of the time. You can get a lot more people on board if you have an inclusive approach. And then once you have a sufficient majority on board, it also mm -hmm. becomes harder for people who wanna take pot shots and bring you down. Um, I think then the next thing is to recognize who your enemies are, because sometimes there are people that you're not going to be able to get on board and you want to be uh, very paying attention to the subtle signals to try to figure as best you can figure out who's really on board and who may just be, be faking it. And, uh, and then part of it, part of it is just forewarned. Part of it is just vigilance to say, okay, I'm not going to kid myself. We may have even gotten the funding for the project, but you know what? Mm -hmm. Funding can be taken away. Projects can canceled all the time. You're never safe. So it's about being ever vigilant and making sure that you're mindful of who are these potential enemies and detractors, keeping people in the boat. Cause you know, just cause people get on board, they can also get off and those detractors may be trying to bring them off. So it's a constant battle. And then lastly, one thing that I think helps a lot is setting the right expectations. And, and let me, and actually, let me, let me say this another way. Be careful about your vulnerabilities and you want to create a project and an effort that is difficult for these detractors to take down. And so how do you do that? Well, having more people on board helps, but also the easiest way to take a transformation or an innovation effort down, if you can't stop it from getting funded, if you can't stop it from getting started, is to wait until there's a problem and then say, oh, see, 
you know, it's not going to work. Look at this problem that's happened. You know, they missed the deadline. It didn't ship on time. Or there's a flaw with the product that we just discovered. Because you know what? Nothing's perfect. So if I were advising the, the detractor, if this was not my, my business, but if I were in the business of advising the other side, I would say, just wait. At some point, they're going to make a mistake. Yeah. Innovation, transformation, it's messy business. You can never do it perfectly. Just wait till they make a mistake and then magnify the mistake and act mm -hmm. like the mistake is a good enough reason to stop the program. Yeah. So one way to inoculate a program against that is to make sure everybody understands up front. You know, it's easier to sell a program up front if you tell everyone it's going to be perfect. Give me the funding because if you give me the money, it's going to be perfect. But if you do that, you've created a massive right. vulnerability. Which is that as sounds soon as you make mistakes, someone says very, very, very po political, right? It sounds politicians yeah. do it all the time. It's like, oh, there's like this, this flaw in law here. We have to take it down. So, you know, speaking a little bit about the future as well, um, what do you think are the biggest digital transformation brand, or maybe the single one, or the ones that you're seeing today and you'll see impacting the next? this decade, right? The 2020s um, decade. Are you bullish about the impact of specific technologies like VR or blockchain or 3D printing? Um, what, are you, what are you actually excited about, really? Yeah. Well, I am excited about all of those things. Um, mm -hmm. I, I long ago tried to make it clear to myself and the <laughs> world that I was not someone who could predict the future. <laughs> it has right. never been my strength. What I am good at is helping companies figure out how to deal with where they are right now and create platforms and strategies that are flexible and adaptable and make sense based on the possible different futures. Right. So uh, I don't have any better knowledge than anybody else, but I do think to, to some of the technologies that you mentioned, first of all, in terms of companies, I think you know it's fairly easy and obvious to see who are the companies that are leading globally uh, in areas of digital. And the truth of the matter is that we think of legacy companies as those being in the most need of digital transformation, but Amazon goes through massive digital transformation every year. Google goes through massive digital transformation. If digital transformation is nothing more than changing, continuing to develop new products, new customer journeys, new technologies to be even more relevant as times change, these companies are doing it faster than anybody. And so I think if we look to the, the companies that we expect and look at those companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, Alibaba, you know, uh, uh, Samsung, you know, these are these are companies that have invested majorly in these areas. They have cultures around uh, innovation, and I'm, obviously, I've I've not mentioned them all. Uber, Airbnb, you know, uh, uh, you know, companies like Zoom. But uh, I think we're gonna. I, to me, the question is, uh, you know, how can we um, place bets in these different areas that make the most sense? And so, uh, you know, for example, when you talk about something like blockchain. Mm -hmm. Blockchain is a very important technology. The vast majority of people don't really know what the heck it is. Uh, something to do with Bitcoin, right, <laughs> is what most people would say. And so I think we have to say this is a technology that has moved, from, moved up to a technology that if you are in this space, you need to get a primer. You might want to read, for example, Shelley Palmer's new book on uh, blockchain. If you go to Amazon and Google Shelley Palmer blockchain, he wrote yeah, a good well, book on it. We're posting that one here on the on the chat as well. Fantastic. Um, so you need to understand it. And and yes, you need to understand AI. Similarly, a lot of people are like, well, AI, I get that it's like really smart systems that can figure things out. But like, how, what are the technologies? How could I actually apply that to my world? In fact, I mentioned the workshops that we do. Sometimes we just bring people together and say, we need to educate a team of executives 
on a new capability like blockchain or AI mm-hmm. or machine learning or yeah. drones or 3D printing. And it's not about saying, let's just use the new bright, shiny object, right? Oh, we have to do something with 3D printing because it's cool. It's not that. Mm-hmm. But it's rather about saying, you talked about points of pain earlier. You know, when you do an analysis of your customers' points of pain, and by the way, it's not only customers, it can be your employees' points of pain too. Right. Very often, there are some that you can't solve, either because you have no technology to solve them. I mean, for example, you know, the best car rental solution would be you don't even need a car. You just, you know, tap your iPhone and it teleports you to where you need to right. go, right? That would be the best. <laughs> but we can't do that, right? So there's always a level of pain solving that we're just not prepared to do. And so what, we ne- what companies need to do is every quarter or at least every year say, okay, technology continues to give us more and more tools at our disposal. You couldn't have done Uber 15 years ago. It would have been impossible. So what if someone said, oh, to call a taxi, you just push a button in your pocket and the taxi comes and gets you. People would have been like, okay, thank you very much. Be practical, right? But now that is practical. So what we need to do is be always asking ourselves, what are these set? That's the value of the pain map, right? We can't solve all the pain, but we can be mindful of the pain so that then we revisit and say, hey, here's what blockchain can do. Here's what AI can do. Here's what drones can do. And maybe there's all of a sudden a point where we say now, we can solve a problem we couldn't solve before because of something, or at least we can pilot it. We can test it. We can see whether this new technology can actually solve a point of customer pain. Yeah, absolutely. And for that, you need people. So how can we you know, stay flexible or companies stay flexible and adaptable to this new changes, challenges, technology opportunities? So, you know, Teresa Torres from um, uh, the product talk, she has a product discovery coach. She talks a lot about the product trial or product trio where you have a designer, you have an engineer, you have a manager. So in your opinion, what are the main skills, personal or professional skills or roles a digital transformation team must have to, to succeed? Do you, right. you know, in, in terms of actual implementation inside a company for scouting technology, for going through the, the, the pain points or pain map, on a recurrent basis? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, again, there's like a whole map of that in my book that goes through like 16 roles or something like that. But but, but let me mention a few. Yeah, just First of all, that. you know, yeah, sure, sure. Well, I think to the point we've just been talking about, yeah, it's great to have product teams, but product teams are generally handed something to work on, you know, like make a product that does this and then they go work on the product. And of course, you want to make sure those product teams are following the principles we've just been talking about, customer research, testing, prototyping, et cetera. But there's a higher level above product teams, which is a broader digital strategy, digital transformation strategy, because sometimes it's about realizing we need a blockchain product, you know, and no product team is going to work on that until someone says, hey, you know, this is the sort of charter, if you will, for a product. So I think you need people doing constant or at least very regular customer research. And any and, and, and to me, the core of digital transformation is customer research. And so I think that would be one skill that's essential. And there are many ways so to do it. But keeping that research, fresh. A researcher, you know, someone on that skill set level. Okay. Yeah. So that's one. Role. And then and then and then journey mapping, right? Because the journey map is meant to be the North Star vision of where the experience your company is trying to create for customers. You always need to have that vision of where are we trying to go? And that needs to be regularly refreshed because you know, it's a vision of the future, but the future is going to keep changing as new technologies. You know, it's like, do you have, do you have the show The Jetsons there in Portugal? 
Well, I, cartoon we, we, used to, we used to we used to have when I when I was a kid. I don't think it's yeah. To... So you know, it's a it's a cartoon from the nineteen yeah. seventies about what the future will look like. And of course it's very funny because there's many old fashioned things, but just made to look cool, right? Because, you know, so the point is your customer journey map needs to be regularly refreshed with the knowledge with new customer research, the world continues to change, technology continues to change. So customer research supporting continuously or at least regularly updated journey map visions of where uh, you wanna go, as well as continuously updating your current journey map, if the current, in other words, the pain map, if the current journey map is, this is the experience my customer has today. If you don't change anything, your customer's experience will still change because their needs are evolving. So look at COVID. I mean, COVID is a super dramatic example where if you kept doing business in the same way, mm -hmm. your customer's needs change dramatically because they're, well, their experience changed dramatically because their needs change. So continuously being mindful of where are we now What's the journey now? What are the pain points now? And then what are the, um, what's the vision of the future? And then what is the technology tool set? And also the competitive vision because co competitors tell you not only the bar that you have to exceed as well as can give you ideas for things that uh, would be more innovative ways of meeting customers' pain points that maybe you didn't think of that you should either be inspired by, copy, or use as a point of further exploration to come up with an even better version. So those are some of the key roles that a transformation has to have. And um, well, can you can you maybe give me a, an example or a recent example of a company that adapted very well or very successfully to digital and, and a company that did not, in your opinion? Uh, sure, sure. Well, Here's, a, here's an example. Let's take a look at Sports Authority and Dick's Sporting Goods. So I don't know if you have those brands everywhere, but in the U.S. I don't, I don't think so, but if you can okay. just give us Well, these a, were the yeah. two leading store chains of stores for mm -hmm. sports apparel. You know, you want a football, a helmet, you know, soccer ball, whatever, right? right. Lacrosse, yeah. you know. Here in and Europe, they were quite similar. Like the and um, I think that's, that's like a comparison here. Okay, yeah, so, so they, when it's back to school, yeah, go ahead. you go there, you buy your sportswear. I got it. Right. So your kid needs what, cleats, yeah. or right, exactly. So uh, these were two large chains, and Sports Authority uh, struggled and ultimately went out of business a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Whereas Dick's, during COVID alone, Dick's stock price rose. I think it was like two hundred percent. Wow. And so what's the difference? Well, of course, there's always many differences, right? It's always an oversimplification to just say there was only one thing that was made a difference. Of course not. Different management, different funding structures, et cetera, et cetera, different real estate plans. But I think most fundamentally, Sports Authority, though of course they had a website, did not have an outstanding customer experience mm -hmm. and digitally. They yeah. did in the store, you know, they were pretty good. There was a sports authority near me. They always had knowledgeable people. You could ask them about, you know, recommend different things, but they did not, they underinvested in having an outstanding digital experience, even though they had one. Whereas mm -hmm. Dix focused on it and made a priority. And when COVID hit, Dix had the flexibility of their systems to make sure they already had order online pickup in the store. So they were able to shift it to order online pickup curbside. And they do a huge e-commerce business that they're, they're, they're good at selling, you know, if they don't have the product in the store, creating an order for you that will be sent to your home through the e-commerce platform. 
it's just the story of two very similar companies, but one that focused more on digital and one that didn't focus as much on digital. And now what we see is one is thriving and wildly successful and the other is out of business. And I think Sports Authority was larger than Dick's. Like if you go back five years, Sports Authority, I'm pretty sure was quite a bit larger than Dick's. Yeah, everything is happening so, so fast also because of that, right? Um, and, you know, also because of the, the, the CTO called COVID. So where can we get in touch with you? What is the best way to get a copy of the book and all that good stuff? Maybe the website yeah. to the uh, canvas as well and the toolbox. Absolutely. Uh, so if you go to the website, winningdigitalcustomers.com, winningdigitalcustomers.com, you have, uh, first of all, you can get the first chapter of the book for free. Uh, second of all, there's links to all the different places you can buy the book. We may not have all the international locations linked, but certainly it's, you know, you can get it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And of course, it's available for Kindle and Nook and Apple Books and those types of things, as well as, of course, you know, hardcover copies. Um, and uh, in addition, uh, so that's one great place to go. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I do a live cast twice a week on LinkedIn. Uh, I also have a podcast. The podcast is called Winning Digital Customers. So if you find my, if you want to look for my podcast, I interview experts in digital transformation and executives at large companies who have led digital transformations for more tips and techniques from the real world. And then I have um, a live cast where I, I go on uh, twice a week as well to talk and expand about topics from the book. Um, and the supplemental materials that come with the book, the URL for that, that's actually also at winningdigitalcustomers.com. You just need the code from the book then that will unlock the additional materials that are available there. All right. So you, you scan the code on a book or just write the, the code on a website and you get the extra materials. Exactly. Okay. Howard, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. Um, I felt that this was, you know, an entire masterclass on digital transformation, working with clients, getting this, this out there. Um, and, yeah, I think this this is it. That we were just sharing some of these links here on on the. Oh, I see. That's steps. great. Thank you. So it will also be available on YouTube, and yes, if you're just joining us now, this is Productize Podcast, and if you enjoyed, this is going to be recorded and later published on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to give us um, and recommend this to your friends and colleagues. You also have. Uh, we're also going to have some show notes and more episodes at productize.medium.com where you can find this and many, many more. Howard, thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you for uh, having me.